0: Welcome to the Mastermix podcast. My name is Mike Nabina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today my guest is Jeremy Griffith. And if you're not familiar with Jeremy, Jeremy has covered a wide variety of musical genres, having worked with artists in the worship music scene such as Kim Walker-Smith, Carrie Jobe, and he's also worked with a bunch of heavier bands such as Norma Jean or Under Oath. And in this episode we get into a lot of really cool conversation about just the philosophy behind approaching your mix, and we cover everything from session setup, um, where to start when it comes to your mixes, adding effects to vocals, and he just has this really cool approach to the way he tackles his mixes, and I highly recommend that you check out his Spotify playlist that he has on his website, because it's really interesting when you listen to the music that he works on. You know, most people tend to have a specific sound for a genre, but when you listen to his mixes, he has this way of making every artist, no matter what genre they're in, they all sound unique. And he has just this really amazing ability to craft the vocal effects and craft the ambience of all of these tracks. And that is definitely a topic that we get into inside of this interview. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Jeremy Griffith, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you today, man? I'm doing, I'm doing really well. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. For people who might not know your story and how you ultimately got into music and production and mixing and engineering, can you give us that background? Yeah, um I
1: think I was like a lot of uh producers and mixers that I was in a band and I was always in bands for years. Um and after your band ends, you know you're too afraid to enter the real world and get a normal job, so you're automatically a producer or something, but <laughs> um, throughout high school and everything, I was always very, very interested in recording, and it always been a part of my life. I just never had the ability to do it like people do now. Like when I was in high school, which was the '90s, you know, there there weren't a lot of home options <laughs> to learn how to record. You had to go to a major studio or something. Um, but I uh, I figured it out. I started with a couple Walkmans. If you know what a Walkman is oh, yeah. and and a mixer from my church that I stole. And I would do the uh record on a tape and then play that tape back through the mixer, play along with it to a new Walkman. And um that that was really fun until about the third time passing it back through, and you're like, I'm out of tune. I don't understand. It's cause the Walkman's ran at different speeds. So <laughs> I would always be out of tune and I never understood why and it was really annoying and then um I actually found a four track reel to reel in my parents garage which is really strange um I I didn't know this until I was well into my like recording career but albums used to come out on reel to reel tape and I thought that was very interesting and in that people I did, I did start to remember like my friends grandparents would have like a two track reel to reel player and I would just be like, why the hell do they have that? Like, I understood records and tapes and mm-hmm. then CDs, you know, but a reel-to-reel was kind of wild until I uh, started talking one day with my uncle who had this massive R&B collection. And I realized he had two reel-to-reel tape decks. And then I was like, oh, we have one in the garage too. But for some reason, my parents bought one that was a four-track overdubbing reel-to-reel. Why did they buy that? Why, why in the world do they have that? So that was my first experience with like true overdubbing. Um, it didn't sound good, or any, I mean, the, I'm sure the tape machine sounds great. I still have it. It's a, it's in the, it's in the back of my studio. I'll never get rid of it. But, um, that was the first time I could do th- overdubbing in in time and in tune. So, better than, a little better so, than the Walkman. Yeah, the Walkmans are really cool though. Like, I bet you now those little yellow Walkmans are like valuable and vintage. Oh yeah,
0: some some like urban outfitter stores selling them for like two hundred bucks a piece or something like that, you know. (laughs)
1: Guaranteed, but that's kind of like the long story short. You know, you do a band and you just don't want to. You don't want to enter the real world, so you just keep, you know, trying to trying to work with music. And my band, I had a lot of people that loved loved my band, and um, they just wanted me to help them with their music. So that's kind of how I kept it going. But it took a very long time. It was really hard.
0: So were you that guy in the band that was like recording your demos and that kind of thing? Or were you guys going to studios for that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean,
1: by, I remember I did the natural progression where I went from my four track uh, reel to reel to, um, I think I got a, an eight track mini disc. Like I remember the mini disc dropped and it was like, Oh my God, I could do this at home. And it had like a, two band eq or something and then i used that for a bit and then they dropped like a 16 track mini disc and i'm like holy crap look at that and they were so expensive and then i remember one day my local music store you know they like knew me by name because i was in there every day i was was probably the worst like (laughs) oh jeremy's here he's playing inner sandman in the back or something and um they were like, dude, check this out. This is uh this is a converter thing for your computer. So you just plug it in and then it goes into your computer. And so I talked my mom into helping me buy this converter. <laughs> and then I like put a computer, like a HP on a credit card. Stupid. So stupid. Because they were so expensive, like for the worst <laughs> computer. I mean, I think I spent like forty five hundred dollars on the worst computer, but that's that's how I made it into using uh,
0: uh, using a computer. And my first software was Cubase
1: because it came with that interface.
0: Nice. Well, at least Cubase was one that you could consistently work with for life. You know, a lot of people started off with like like Cool Edit Pro or something like that. You know,
1: <laughs> Fruity Loops. I felt yeah, like Fruity everyone. Yeah, Fruity Loops was another was, big one. Yeah, Cubase. You know, Cubase was really great because they gave you so much shit out of the gate uh you know, you know like channels channel strips or compressors or even some reverb or something you know back then that just didn't they didn't have a lot but yeah i kind of abandoned cubase <laughs> a few years after that and recently actually picked up cubase pro again and i'm honestly really blown away by it
0: yeah is it is it your main daw these days or are you in like pro tools or something or
1: i'm pro tools hd um yeah, yeah. But I bought Cubase because I was like, I, you know, I want to see what this is about. Um, I've worked on quite a few films now that I've done the music for, and seems like the industry standard for films is Cubase, and I wanted to know why, so I bought it, and it's incredible, but my brain just couldn't shift. I, I don't have time, you know, to spend, I don't know, a couple hours a night to learn this new DAW, and it messed with my, like, um, ability to be efficient in Pro Tools, so... Mm-hmm. I know some I, – I, well, I definitely have friends out there who can rock, like, three different DAWs, and it's, like, no big deal. But for me, I just – I don't have that
0: ability. It's a lot of brain power to remember all of the commands and navigation and and menus is and
1: stuff. so deep, like, too deep.
0: You yeah. can
1: do things that you shouldn't be able to do, and it's – there are things about Cubase I wish Pro Tools would apply, but, you know – Mm -hmm. can't have it all
0: (laughs) that's the thing with all of those programs is they are very deep and it all it all comes down to how you use them like i remember i used to work in audio post-production and like doing a lot of film mixing and stuff and when i got in that world i was like holy shit everyone's using pro tools in a completely different way than i'm used to with music like so many little hidden menus and all sorts of stuff and it was like this is Ah, this is interesting. It's a whole, like totally. a whole new world, right? So I imagine that, like you know, to actually like really get good at every DA or like in multiple DAWs, it's just that's that's a lot, a lot to take in. I will
1: say, and I skipped a lot about like my history of recording, but I did after after those little workstations, I did start working at a studio in uh, Saint Augustine, Florida, that was like all analog. So I got like a full education on tape and consoles. And, um, I did a lot of records there and I really learned how to, how to record and really hone those skills on those, those consoles. So the thing I, I've always thought about Pro Tools is that it's a little bit more like an actual console. It's set up very much for audio, in my opinion, as far as, hey, we're here to treat audio, you know, we're not, I don't know, um, I, I don't know. Like the other programs to me are just like very conducive to like being creative where Pro Tools, it can be, and I've learned how to do it. But, you know, you jump into Cubase and you're immediately like, holy crap, I don't,
0: I don't even know how that <laughs>
1: happened. You know what I mean? And it, it's, it's just an interesting, an interesting thing. My brain ha- needed Pro Tools because it looked like a console to me. So, yeah.
0: So, as far as like using your software like a console, like how, what do you mean by that? Like, what, how could someone, treat their sessions a little more like a console? Well,
1: you know, I grew up on a very limited, like, you know, track count basically in this studio. Like the primary console that was there when I was there was a Trident B, um, ADB. And I think it was a 40 channel console. It was big. And um, I set up Pro Tools the way that Trident, like, kind of taught me how to do signal flow. So it's left to right, you know, master sections on the right. So no matter what, still to this day, my master section in Pro Tools is on the right and my effects and my buses and everything are on the right. And um yeah, I just set it up the way we would track on this console and my, I'm still that way to this day. Like the way he taught me, like, you know, kick drum is first, you know, snares, you know, so forth, bass, guitars, blah, 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 blah. I still set it up that way in, I can't change it. Um, I've definitely done some different things with busing and now folders with Pro Tools and all these things, but um yeah, I just wanted it to mirror that that signal flow I learned about when I first started because that that was the first time I ever made good recordings.
0: <laughs> that makes sense though it's like once you once you've figured out your workflow and the way you like your tracks laid out. It, it just becomes one less decision that you have to make. You know, you're not you're not trying to find the tracks and, you know, where did I put that kick drum or where, where's that guitar track or whatever. Like, you know where things are supposed to be. So that's just like, that makes you work faster because instinctively you can go to the things you need. Whereas like, if you're just changing it up every single time, you're just slowing yourself down really at the end of the day because you're, you're adding more work to yourself.
1: That took me so long to figure out, you know, everything was such a wreck, like in my DAW when I first started it out like that was the brilliance of tape it's like one to one if you have a 24 track tape machine you know that's it and so one goes to one two goes to two three goes to three and you know there's there's not a lot of ways to get confused other than just keeping track of what's on the tape and that that in itself is really difficult where with Pro Tools or any of these DAWs you can do anything in the you know When I first started getting into Pro Tools, I was lost. Like, there was stuff just playing that I couldn't see and just all this crap. So it took me a really long time to figure out how to transfer over that stuff I learned on the console to Pro Tools, you know. Just because it was unlimited, really. Even though when I first started out with Pro Tools, it was Pro Tools LE, which was 32 tracks. But the idea that you have all these tools on each channel, you could route it any way you wanted you know that that stuff was just like oh my god i don't have any clue what to do here so <laughs> yeah i don't know it's 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 an interesting process converting to daws from consoles but I just needed it to look like a console.
0: <laughs> Fair, yeah. Do you find that you like I know some people with their software, they'll they'll follow a similar approach where they want it to look like their console, but they'll even limit themselves to how many tracks. Like I think like Chris Lord Algae always has like forty eight tracks or something like that. Like do you do do you do anything like that yourself or is it just kind of like however many tracks there are, that's fine, but you just have it laid out a specific way?
1: Well, you know, someone like CLA can do what he wants. Like people don't really argue with Chris Lord Algae. Um <laughs> you know or like Tom Elmhurst I love Tom Elmhurst people like that you know they they can kind of do what they want and people are afraid of them now i do try to implement some of that i try to commit i try to communicate with the client as much as i can like hey anything you can commit like you know not just tuning but it's funny like the further i've gotten into my career you know the higher the level of client and the higher it gets, the more they commit, you know, and I love the committing, you know. So when I first started out, people would be like, I, you know, I would send them a mix or something. They'd be like, hey, man, something's like really wrong. And I'd be like, well, what's wrong? And they're like, well, the drums, you know, they're not filtered through the verses and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I, well, are they supposed to be? And he, they're like, yeah, man. I'm like, well, they weren't filtered in the session or whatever. And they're like, oh, well, we took all that off. We thought you would do it better. I'm like, I've never heard the song. like, <laughs> So I do feel like lately people are committing a lot and uh, it's making it easier. But like I was saying, like stuff like folders and all that has made it where I can have a 300-track session and it look like eight. True. And that's really powerful these days because – I do I do kind of understand where those guys are coming from. I want less on my screen. I always make better moves and my mixes always come out better. So yeah, I, the folder thing has kind of changed the whole deal cuz it's in there. But on my screen it's it's really condensed. So but you know, someone like CLA and even Elmhurst, you know, they're still mixing on the console. And um I'm And that's not, probably why so. they
0: restrict their track count as well, right? Cuz they are limited to that. They they may have three hundred sessions and three hundred tracks in their session, but then they're 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 narrowing it down because they only have the forty eight channels on the on the board or that kind of thing.
1: CLA seems to have such a system. Like there's only one system. This is how it's going to go through. Period. Like you know, you watch those videos of him making moves and changing EQs, and I'm sure that's truthful. But he he kind of mixes the same song over and over, and he has everything ready to go. So I'm sure. I'm sure they lay it out in a way that it's a really it's really quick to make an incredible mix. So um I I have found that with my own mixing and producing that I don't love templates. Um I love I love presets. So I love when they started uh offering people be, uh, in Pro Tools to be able to make like recall presets. So basically I could save a set of vocal effects you know and I went in there and I started making just piles of different combinations of vocal effects I loved that I loved different you know presets of master buses because I use a ton of master buses like in my mixes and I find myself doing that more once I get into the song I listen to the rough and I'm like oh I'm gonna try this first preset of vocal effects boom Stuff like that, rather than being like, all right, here's my template. Drop it in. All right, my mix is done. I just don't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I've watched some videos of guys doing that. Like I watched one on the uh, I think it, Ultimate Recording Academy, um, URM. That's like a metal one. Um, and they actually interviewed this country guy, and he was great. He was great, but he literally can mix a song in like 10 minutes. Because he would drop his files in and just be like, play, and it would play. And I'm like, that's amazing, but also I hate that so much. Like, <laughs> hats off to him to be able to make this template that kind of works on most country music. Um, but I don't want to do that. So
0: I, I guess it's one of those things where when, when you're known for a specific sound, people expect it. So you can have those sure. templates to get that kind of sound, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, but that maybe that plays into my career and what I've really wanted to do with what people think of my records because I've even had people tell me that I'm not as successful as I could be because I'm not pigeonholed and I'm like, well, I just don't want to do, I want to work with all the genres. Like I want to mm-hmm. know how you guys make music in all these different genres. I don't want to be just a, a template guy and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying to, those guys who template are incredible. Like they're spitting out incredible stuff, but I get really excited about the idea of doing something a little differently now (laughs) now when before it could only be kind of like a console but you know with the evolution of my career you know it's it's really fun to hear things happening in in a
0: new way for sure well that's that's interesting because you brought up a couple points that i wanted to ask you about and one of them is the fact that you do work on a lot of different genres of music you know i I think that like you've done everything from like acoustic stuff pop stuff metal stuff like like all that stuff so a lot of people do tend to narrow down their focus and tend to focus on one genre. Like, was that always the, the case for you that you worked in lots of different genres or were you, did you start in one genre and think that was going to be it and then eventually expand or how, how did that all play out?
1: Well, I definitely thought I was going to be some like monster rock producer. And I realized that I kind of couldn't handle the fatigue of recording rock all the time. Cause I did, a, I've done tons of metal and rock and, um, it's awesome i love working on it but the fatigue of it is 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 real it's it's hard but i think a lot of the at the beginning a lot of the different genre stuff was because i was afraid to say no to a job you know so like i got involved with christian music not because i liked christian music but because somebody heard a record i did and they were like oh, we think this would apply to this album we're doing so they hired me to mix this album and then it blew up and then i started mixing all this christian music and then one day i was like oh my god i don't want to be a christian music mixer guy <laughs> only because that that really does happen to those mixers and those yeah, those guys are really really good really good um but they get they get trapped and so i found myself taking financial losses to take risk with different kind of artists that wouldn't normally hire me like offering my services for very low or free to be like i just want to be a part of what you're doing um and every time i've done that it turned into a new like avenue of work in a different direction you know you have to Mm -hmm. take risk big risk um to get to do different kinds of music i even found myself at times almost begging Like, God, I want to mix your song so bad. And eventually they would just be like, all right, fine, and send it to me, and I'd freaking destroy it. And they'd be like, we want you to do the album. You know what (laughs) I mean? So it's, you know, I think a lot of my my genre stuff was fear of not being stuck, uh, or fear of being stuck in a certain genre. But yeah, I mean, I'm just so interested in all kinds of music too. Like, I really just want to know how they're made. Like, even, like... I feel like hip hop and rap gets kind of a bad name for production or something but that shit is crazy like
0: you can have I, fun with I'll it I'll
1: open it's just insane what they do with some of that stuff like they push they push the limits of what is, you know, what is what sounds good, you know, like the way they handle 808s and stuff is is incredible like you turn it on your tr- in my truck I'll turn on a hip-hop song in my truck, and I'm just like, I don't have any clue how they made it hit so hard, and it sounds distorted, and I like it, and how'd they do that? I got to figure it out. So, you know, I, th- I think there's general curiosity about the genres and just fear, if that answers your question.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it is really important to, especially early on, like some people do want to niche down and, and find that, genre that they prefer to work in. But I do think it's really important to get a taste of different genres and to learn how to work in different sort of situations because you learn different techniques. You know, it, it forces you to listen to things differently. Like when you talk about like hip hop and that kind of thing, it's like, how the hell did they get the the low end to sound so big, yet so clear and not distorting or overloading, that kind of thing. So it's like you start to pay attention to those details. And then maybe in rock music, you're starting to pay attention to things like saturation a little bit more. And then you're kind of finding where you can use some of these different techniques and apply them to whatever genre you're working in. And that's ultimately going to give you a, a unique kind of creative sound what's so, interesting to I, I, me
1: about it are how much closer the genres are than they sound true you know like i was telling this guy at a big christian label one time i go you know mixing this christian music is like mixing metal and they're just like what do you mean that's that no it no it's not i'm like yes it is it's the same you guys want stuff just as extreme <laughs> like you want your, you know, like especially in like worship music, they want kicks and snares so incredibly dominating. And I'm like, that right? That, that is like pure metal. You want your low end insane. You want to be able to hear this wall of sound at all times. You want the loudest vocal ever with perfect effects. And you know, it's like that's the same as metal. And it, it's been interesting to me how I can apply, like you just said, things from different genres. Um, to each other and, and how useful that is to know how to do all those,
0: you know? hmm Yeah, it, I totally agree with that. And like, I always think to think that to myself, it's like, I, I get typically pigeonholed as a bit of a like punk producer. Like that's, I, I love working on that stuff. So, you know, whatever, I'll, I'll keep working on it. But, but every now and then I think to myself, like, oh man, it would be so much fun to like mix a country song or something like that. Like I think I think there's a lot of similarities between what I do with the punk stuff to, to what's in country music, or or even even metal has a lot of crossover with a lot of the, the new country stuff too, you know? So there's just there's just so many ways you can fuse these different genres. I think it's really powerful to,
1: you know. Well, I've met a few people who love the genre they work in, like my friend Bo Burchell. Do you know Bo Burchelle? Yep. You got to have Bo on here, but he would love to be on it. But Bo, he he and I talk every single day and I'm always just he does a lot of like really heavy bands. And I'm just like, man, I I don't have the energy or like the stamina. And he's like, oh, I love it. I just love listening to it all day. And I'm like, man, that's amazing. Like he literally is happy every time I talk to him. You got to hear this. This is insane. And so some people, man, they just find their genres and they just kill it, man. And they go, they do get pigeonholed and they don't care. They love it. And I think that's really cool too, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess like, you know, one way to look at it is you get to listen to music you enjoy all day long. So, you know, it's better totally. than working on something yeah. you can't stand, you know?
1: <laughs> Maybe I don't like music. Maybe that's the problem. I don't know. Well,
0: it, it, it's kind of funny because in a way, like being an audio engineer, like audio engineer, you you do need to learn to be able to tune certain things out to some degree, you oh, know? Absolutely. Like, yeah. You're fo- You're focused on the music in a completely different way than anyone else who's just listening to these tracks. Like, you know, my wife doesn't listen to music the same way I do. I can find value in everything I listen to, even if it's something that normally like I wouldn't turn on myself. You know, I, I'll find that value. I'll find that that cool effect that they're using or that kind of thing. So, totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I feel really lucky. Like, you know, I'd say the last between five and eight years, ninety percent of the music that comes through my studio, I. Re- really like it like i feel so lucky to be working with this level of artists that you know everyone's kind of awesome like they're really good maybe you know they're only good at the thing they do but they're really good at that one thing and it's it's really cool to be able to work on stuff that um, has so much conviction behind it and um is just really good and really awesome to listen to it's way more inspiring when you're working on it you know so of course
0: and it's also interesting too because you said earlier that people tend to commit a lot more as you're getting, as your career has grown and the quality of artists that you've worked with has, has grown, people are committing more. And I think that, that that helps because you're also getting people who are confident in their decisions and they're they've they've established the sound that they want and you know they know they know that kind of stuff. So they're building it into the track so that like they're they're protecting their sound to some degree, you know. Whereas totally. like some amateur or like younger artists who have never been in the studio, they're kind of like I don't know what makes things sound good, so like let's just pass it all off to the engineer to to guess at what to do. And meanwhile, they've got this whole vision for themselves that they just just haven't told you, right? So, you know,
1: I've, I've been mixing lately, or for the past year or so, for this label out of New York called Eighty Eight Rising, which is a uh, I guess it's a Asian hip hop pop label. Cool. But literally every single track I get from them, I'm like, this is incredible. And I love how like my first mix for them was this artist named Jackson Wang who I didn't know about, and then I looked him up and he is massive. And I had no clue. Like we're talking about artists that have like a billion streams, for real. Like I mix this other girl for them named Nikki, billion streams. But I remember I was mixing this song, um, and it's it's a really cool lesson, actually, how I even got in, involved with 88 Rising because, gosh, 15 years ago or something, I was uh, engineering this record for my friend John Duke, and the keyboard player in the project, his name was Max, and we got along. He was really just the nicest guy. The whole crew was a nice crew, and we just talked a bunch, and... You know, we we're friends like you do when you do a session, you know, and you don't think anything of it. All right. Well, pan to a year ago. I get a text message from Max. He's like, hey, man, it's it's Max Mitchell. Been following you for a long time. I, I have a song I would just love for you to, to work on. And I was like, oh, my God, Max, how you been? You know, blah, blah, blah. And he sends me over this track. And I I made the mistake of not listening to the rough first. But I do that I find myself doing that a lot like just kind of getting into it you know and him being like hey man it's a pop track but you know live drums you know real instruments and stuff and I'm like cool so I start getting the song together and it's going and I text Max and I'm like hey man not trying to be weird this song is incredible like what is this you know and everything about it it's amazing and like the production is just off the chain like it's so good the playing is so good and he's like Oh, it's this artist named Jackson Wang. And um, yeah, he, he does really well. And so then immediately I look him up and I'm like, oh, he's massive. <laughs> and so I mix this song and it turns out great. And honestly, I send him the mix and he's like, this sounds incredible. But, you know, the production and the tracks were so good. It's like literally anyone could have mixed it and they would have gotten that response. And um. I don't know, it's just like a great lesson A on having a good relationship with somebody from fifteen years ago that turns into this whole year's worth of work. Like I'm almost mixing for them exclusively now. It's like every week. <laughs> Crazy. Hey man, we we have eight more songs for X, Y, and Z the, and I'm just like, Oh okay. Like <laughs> this is amazing. And it's been like one of the greatest projects I've worked on ever, but It's a a great lesson on having a good relationship, but it's also a great lesson on when the production is hot, you're going to look good. Now, that being said, there have been countless productions I've had to quote-unquote save, which I have. And there have been some also that they were like, can you help it? And I'm like, I don't think so. Like, this is pretty bad. Um, But I also think we're in an interesting time in music where recordings or what's considered a good recording has changed and that's something i'm actually kind of excited about like i use this as an example when boney Vare's self-titled album dropped uh, the, the big one the second one um to me it was like one of the first massive records like universally massive records that didn't sound like anything else happening um On the radio or that was popular because truly it's like a lo-fi record Mm -hmm. Um, and there were other people too you know obviously there's been tons of people to make you know not these like perfect sounding like active rock records or something but i don't know i really felt a shift in what was accepted after he started winning grammys for that album because then you started to see that you know man if the song is really good we can present this in so many different ways where before it was definitely like, this just isn't good enough. This isn't Mm. good enough. Blah, 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 blah. You know, think about the countless amount of songs we've missed out on just because the production wasn't deemed good enough or something, you know? So I think we're in a really cool spot because now there's so many different types of sounds coming out that I'm like, shit, I love that. No clue what they did. And you know, it might be a kid in his bedroom with a laptop you know, one of my favorite records ever is made on a laptop. It's this guy named Burial. And he it's like dance, shuffled dance music. I don't even understand what he's doing. And I read all the stuff about it. And he didn't use the grid. And it sounds so great, but kind of awful and amazing. And I just, I think it's really interesting that we're in a time where, you know, there's a lot more acceptance about what is good. And I think that's a really cool thing.
0: For sure. Well, yeah, it's becoming more about the songs and not necessarily about the uh the standard to some degree, you know.
1: But don't get me wrong, there there are recordings happening right now that are the greatest thing I've ever heard. But I just think it's so cool that, you know, there's a lot of different levels of acceptance mm-hmm. now and I think that's it's an amazing thing.
0: But I think that's important to bring up as well because Music has always kind of followed certain trends and it's always kind of been that when a song goes goes big that everyone's like oh well, I got to make something that's kind of in that same sort of sound or you know so sure. there, there's always been a little bit of like crossover that way but but yeah I think to your point like people are experimenting a lot more and they're kind of like the, the fact that we can have songs that sound lo-fi that are becoming number ones or like just become super popular it. like it it's really changed that landscape of you know what a pro mix sounds like you know it's not just about having like super tight everything polished that kind of thing you can have a little well, bit what's of rough interesting edges. about it too you're totally
1: right what's interesting about it is that when the home the home recording thing started going down i was like oh my god this is it we're all going out of business like any guy that's like trying to do it the way i have but now i'm getting people asking me how to figure out how to make their songs sound like some of those interesting sounding home recordings or something and Mm -hmm. that in itself is a really fun challenge too it's like i don't know there's just i don't know it's just like a it's a a really freeing time and i'm busier than i've ever been and some of that's home recording some of that's you know major labels or whatever you know so yeah
0: it's funny that like you'd mentioned that you're trying to now chase some of these home recording sounds and i think that's kind of funny and interesting in a way too because you know we're a lot of us have been trained to think that, you know, the pro studio way is that you do things a certain way. And so that's kind of become our standard, right? Whereas like, sure. when we're trying to chase after home recordings, often it's people who that have no clue or no formal, no formal training on this stuff at all. So they're like really just experimenting, trying to get whatever sounds cool to them. And so to, to then like deconstruct that and try to, you know, figure out what they did, sometimes that's even more challenging.
1: Well, I think there's a lot of power in accidents, you know, and there's some old recordings I've done where I didn't know what the hell was going on that I go back to and listen to, and I'm like, no clue how I did that. Man, that's cool. That is so cool. You know, it's kind of like my friends who go to music school who, you know, were really great at songwriting, and then they go to music school, and they come back, and they can't write a song anymore. It's like, Mm. you know, they know too much. But, yeah, I just, I think... You know, obviously, with tools and computers, people can do more than they used to do. And some of that is harmful. Like, I don't know, just, I don't know. Some of the like cheats of it to me seem a little harmful. But at the same time, there are people making music solely based on samples. And they've done that a lot. But there's, you know, services like Splice and all that stuff. Now there's like genres like lo fi hip hop. Guess what? It's the coolest shit ever. And it's like a dude in his room. Who's grabbing samples off splice and just putting them together in his dog. And guess what? I love it. I, I know he didn't come up with all or she come up with all the recording of it and everything, but I'm really enjoying it. So, yeah, you know, there's there's just so much to learn all the time. And I'm like, okay with it, you know. Now, I do think sometimes with like especially like really high end pro audio equipment, it's so hard to make a bad recording like i like this wonder pre i'm using on this mic and i have this tone luck c37 it's like if the guitar player is good there's like no way for me to make it sound shitty like an acoustic guitar player like you know what i mean you got to work really hard for it to like <laughs> kind of sound like what's going on in like a bedroom or somebody who had a cheap mic or something so i i think it's really interesting to think about too that most gear has a purpose like even shitty mics. Like I was talking to you before we got on here about these mono price mics. I have. I bought them because they were like sixty bucks, and I was like, they're interesting. And Tape Op had done an article about them being the best condenser under a thousand dollars or something. So I was like, well, of course I'm going to get two of these. They're sixty dollars, and I got it here, and I was like, these are cool. This is really cool, you know. So. You know, the biggest thing is about what's going into the microphone, you know? If your source is bad, the microphone sucks. If your source is good, it's an incredible microphone. You know, Amy Winehouse could have sang into a tin can on a string, and you would have been like, wow. That's well, true. Whew, God, you know what I mean? So, oh, yeah. it's just really interesting.
0: Totally. I absolutely agree. You had touched on a couple things earlier that I wanted to go back to. You were talking about... um a, not using templates, and B, working in different genres, and we were talking about how you can kind of fuse those different styles and come up with a, a unique sound. And one thing that I notice with your mixes that I think you do a really great job with is vocal effects. And after hearing you say that you don't use templates, it kind of clicked with me why, why this makes sense. But like you seem to have this great year for finding r- the right sounds when it comes to things like you know, uh, reverbs or delays or harmonizers or whatever. And it just gives every vocal its own unique ambience, which I really dig. And I was wondering, what is your normal approach for deciding what to put on vocals?
1: Well, that's pretty interesting because I think I'm just in love with vocal effects. (laughs) Like (laughs) I lust over reverbs more than most things. Like right now I have this Benson Stereo Tallbird Spring Reverb. It's in my rack over here. And I try to put that on literally everything just because I think that reverb itself sounds so cool, but I, I don't know. I, I kind of want every vocal to feel, and I say this about most music, but I I want the vocal to feel like a memory or something like, and I feel like I get a lot of that with the effects and um, I don't really have like a cut and dry way i'm gonna do it but i definitely enjoy multiple reverbs on a vocal and a lot of modulation and usually almost every vocal i'm running has a slap delay at all times you may not be able to hear it uh, but it's going um but i i don't know if i really have a process other than i know i'm going to apply these four different things one being Whatever the sound of the vocal is, what's the sound going to be? Is it going to be a dry? Is it going to be a plate verb, a spring verb? What's it going to be? And so I figure that out pretty early on in a mix. And then once I figure out what I like with that, you know, th- throughout the mix, I'll, I'll play with the decay of that verb, you know, or whether or not it needs to be a hall, or you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then, you know, I spend a lot of time on the modulation. Like, do I want to run a chorus? Sometimes I run a phaser on the vocal, sometimes a flanger. I know it sounds like ridiculous, but I'm actually trying to make movement in just the tone. And I think it's an, it's an important part of a modern vocal, in my opinion. And then after that, I do a very like affecty delay into verb. I always send a delay into a verb. I think that just makes this like ghostly like memory sound like I was talking about. And then a slap delay at the end um, just to give it even more depth. Um, but I don't, I don't have like, you know, a route I always go. Like I do find myself with stuff like the Benson verb. If if I feel like the song can handle the Benson verb, I immediately go to it and I use it. And 90% of the time, if I think it's going to work, it becomes almost the most important thing in the mix is to hear this verb. And so I treat I treat a lot of stuff that way, you know, just kind of decide what I think the sound will be. And I I love reverb,s like it's so fun. I don't. Know, does that answer your question?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it, it it makes sense that you're experimenting with all of these different things, and to hear all those different, like those four different things that you typically add, I, I think it's. It's interesting. Like, do you are you had mentioned that you typically send a delay into a reverb? Are you tipi- Are you also sending any of the other effects into them, or, or or into each other, or are they all kind of their own bus that you normally go to and just have yeah, it work I mean, independently? The delay
1: into the reverb I use for moments, like throws or whatever, you know. But I don't know what it is. A long delay um, into a really long verb just gives. I don't know this really vast sound that almost creates a pad, and I mean there will be times that I use that as the verb, um, mm-hmm. but um, I don't send much other stuff into that long verb other than that delay, and it'll be a heavily modulated delay too, you know, like a very chorusy, you know, warbly delay or something, memory man style delay, but um, yeah, I mean it just really depends on the song and what the song's doing, but. I've just been so lucky in the past five to eight years that, like, almost every singer I mix, I can do that. You know? I can go above and beyond with the effects, and it's amazing because the vocal is amazing. So, I don't know. On the same hand, you can, an amazing vocalist, you can make 100% dry, and you're like, what an amazing vocal. So (laughs) It's true. It really still, still just comes down to the source, you know? Yeah. So... But that's cool you picked up on that cuz I really love that. It aspect.
0: was the first it's thing cool. I noticed when I was like just clicking through your discography. I was like, holy shit, like every vocal sounds different, but they're all really really cool.
1: That's cool. That's that's a that's a compliment for me, man.
0: No problem, man. Yeah, really like he, hey, you did it. So <laughs> <laughs> As far as um you had mentioned like a long reverb tail, do you typically work with longer like are you trying to sync the the reverb times to the tempo of the songs or do you just kind of like i know some people do that some people don't
1: no no i i kind of i mean i'll tell you right now i don't mind telling the podcast it's a black hole reverb like from Eventide. i don't even change it i open it and i change the like mix and that's it and i'm just like oh my god that's that's the sound i want to hear <laughs> like when i'm dying you know like it's just amazing um No, I don't sync that stuff or anything, and of course it doesn't work all the time. But it's a good go-to. It's really fun. Yeah, it's really fun for me to play play with, you know. And it's it completely can change the mix, you know. When you Hmm. throw that stuff in there, you're immediately like, oh, like if you know, if the whole time the the artist has thought of the song is presented in a dry way, and then you throw on the most beautiful wide delay verb thing, they might just be like, I've never heard it like that this is cool and it might change things or i don't know it's just i think i'm just so enthralled with that kind of reverb too that i throw it on everything and it's like a 50 50 chance or whether or not they're gonna like it so there but i so also it, do try to really pay attention to what the song needs so those are just things that i really enjoy and are drawn to
0: yeah well I guess that you know that's where you as a producer or as a mixing engineer come in with your creative vision like you're hearing it with your experience of knowing all of these different tools like you can hear the song from a different perspective and so you you can offer that to the band and and by just you know experimenting with it saying hey what do you think of this like it might send them off on a completely different creative path and give that band its own unique sound to some degree right you know it's
1: so it's such a comforting thing now too that you know most I'd say ninety five percent of the work I get, I'm getting hit up because people like the way those records sound, which in turn means they like the way I hear music. And so, when I do my mix, ninety five percent of the time they're like, "Oh, I love it." It's it's pretty rare now that they're like, "Oh God," unless you know they just aren't into what I've been doing, and um. That's like a compliment all in itself when you send off a mix and they're like, wow, I never thought of it this way. Oh, this is so great. I, You know, it's it's, it's such a neat feeling still after all this time. So at what point do you start to add your effects into the, the mix? Well, you know, um, early on, I did, I feel like what a lot of people would do, like you say it's a rock mix, I would do the drums first, you know, and then bass and guitar. I'm kind of backwards now, where I literally will find the primary instrument first, no matter the style of the song and the vocal, and I start playing with those first. And then, you know, I start bringing up like more of the core instruments. So if it's a rock mix, then I start bringing up kicks and snares and overheads and compare it with the primary instrument and compare it with the vocal to see how they're going to fit and what I want to do with it. And um, I'd say er, really early on, you know, vocal stuff is going down. Like, it's probably, you know, it's probably, gosh, it's probably in the first 20% of the mix is me starting to listen to this vocal. And also, it helps me determine whether or not it's a good vocal. (laughs) Fair. And um, I kind of go that route now, if that makes sense. Um, Like, bass guitars last, you know. Interesting. You know, because it's like if you if you turn on your bass guitar and it just totally changes the whole thi- thing or if you're mixing and you mute your bass and you never hear the bass, it's not in the right spot. So if that makes sense. So. Yeah,
0: of course. Well, it, and I, I am su- I'm assuming too that when you throw a bunch of effects on a vocal and it gives you that that ambience or whatever. It then shifts your decisions about what you're going to do with all the other instruments, as far as their ambience too, and how you fit it all into the big, big picture.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no like systematic way I go about it because those effects I might add at the, at the beginning, I might end up taking them off. Like, it's just a way to get into the mix and to like kind of figure out the route I want to go. Um, now, sometimes you know they're they're like, hey, this is this is a very drum heavy so the drums are the thing So of course i'll start on the drums and you know do it that way but it's just it's all about just how do i get into my mix you know how do i and i've seen a lot of other like really big mixers talk about that like michael brower he's like the hardest part is how do i get into the mix what is that process so i definitely try to start with the core instrument and a vocal and then start adding things around it and i found I found that it's just very useful. It feels counterproductive when you're doing it. But then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're you're paying attention and listening in a new way and you're like, oh, oh shit. I didn't even realize I had gotten here. Like mm-hmm. and and your mix starts to come together just mentally. <laughs> yeah. Where you're like, Wow, oh wow. Listen to this. Like, listen to this balance. This is cool. So I found when I shifted it to like main instrument and vocal first that I I had more success with what the client was looking for.
0: Interesting. When you say main instrument, instrument and vocal, are you talking about only having those in the mix at the beginning or are you kind of working from some sort of bed track?
1: Yeah. Like, you know, it's harder with like a heavy band or something because you know, the riffs are crazy and the drums are crazy. So it doesn't apply as much there, but like, say like a solo artist, like a, like a, I don't know a folk artist. Of course, you're going to start with the acoustic guitar or piano in the vocal, then add add everything around there. But I, you know, sometimes it's hard to identify what the core of the song is. You know, because especially with modern pop production or something, there's like all this like so it's like well,
0: there's so many different <laughs> layers that make up that that overall sound, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's amazing. So I try to work that up for still and then bring in that vocal just to hear what the
0: song is doing and hear the performance. So, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So so with all of that experimenting that you can do because obviously there's so many options out there. You know, how long does it normally take you to finish a mix?
1: I mean, it just really depends on the song, you know. Some of these pop mixes feel like I'm done with them in an hour or two. Hmm. And and then some of these big like like a Christian Christian, like a worship mix? God, a whole day for a song. Because, you know, it's like 200 tracks of audio, and you're just like, well, okay, they sent me 15 pads. All right, cool. Which pad do you want? <laughs> <laughs> just make a blend. I'm like, no. You make a blend. Send it back. <laughs> and then I'll use your blend. But, you know, it just really depends on the the track content, how they set it up for me. Um do I like the song? Cause if I like the song, I mean, I'm done quick. It's really funny how that plays into it, but yeah, you know, I mean, anywhere from two hours to, you know, six or seven hours.
0: Gotcha. So then how do you know when you're ultimately done with the mix?
1: You know, that's a really weird thing. And I've talked to a lot of people about that because there's no moment. I feel like there's no defining moment. It's just all of a sudden you're like, that sounds pretty good oh (laughs) oh yeah yeah and then you do you know you might have to run an errand so you print it and you go to the truck and you're just like yeah oh hell yeah you know what i mean it's like sometimes you're pressed for time and you send it off and hope for the best and other times it's just there it is man like i don't know i i think i'm just so confident in what i'm able to do and the way i hear music that I'll get to a point where I'm just like, that sounds really good. I like that. I know it's not perfect, but that sounds really good. Let me send it to them. Or these days, you know, we use like audio movers and I send them a link and I'm like, is this correct? (laughs) You know, and 90% of the time, they're like, oh man, this is dead on. This is amazing. Or they'll be like, whoa, (laughs) this sucks. You know, and I'm just like, cool. But yeah, you know, I mean,
0: I think you just get to a spot where you're like, Yeah, this sounds good. That sounds really nice. So Yeah, I'm always fascinated by people's processes and, and especially like the end of it, because so many people have different different indications of when they're done with their mix, you know. And, and so right. yeah, to your point, yeah, sometimes it is just you, you just you just ran out of time. Or sometimes it's you send it to the band just to check in and see like if you're if you're even close, and then they're like, Yep, that sounds finished, let's let's wrap it up. Like, you know, sometimes yeah. it, it's all over I've the never place. Like,
1: yeah, there are definitely times where I'm not like convinced. Where it's like, hell yes, I killed this. So those happen, but I'd say you know half the time I'm sending it to them, being like, this is what you're looking for, right? And they'll be like, oh my god, it sounds amazing. And then literally just hearing those words for them, and then I listen to the mix again, and I'm like, oh hell yeah, this is sick. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I need I need that shift. So
0: yeah, sometimes just getting that that. Affirm- like affirmation that it you know it does sound good that's that's all you need because then you then you think about it not from the technical perspective and instead you're just enjoying the song like they're like they're totally. hearing
1: it yeah that's exactly right you know i think in the end that insecurity is like are they gonna like how i was hearing it you know but you know you have to have confidence to just be like this is how i'm hearing it and this is how i'm gonna roll mm-hmm. and that's, that's what I do every time. I'm like, yep, this is what I want. This is what I'm doing. Bang, 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 bang. And I do it. I send it off. Most of the time, they love it. That's awesome. So then in the end,
0: what ultimately makes a great mix for you?
1: Well, this is a deep answer here or deep question. You know, it's weird. It's a really weird question, too, because I've definitely heard songs that I hate that i think sound incredible because i want to answer and say man if the song's incredible the mix is incredible (laughs) but it just doesn't apply i don't know man i i just want it to feel awesome i i emphasized it earlier like everything should sound kind of timeless like even modern pop you know like there are certain pop songs that I hear coming out where I'm like, you know, that one might be around in 20 years. It's got a feel to it. That's very timeless. And I think that's just really important. And I don't, I don't know if there's a a way to determine that or make that happen. I just think it happens naturally for certain songs and certain artists. And then there are things that are extremely temporary, you know, dubstep, (laughs) you know what I mean? Stuff like that, you know, but I don't think there's a good answer for that because I like so many different types of sounding records, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I said, I love these lo-fi things. I love the hi-fi stuff. You know, I like a mashuga mix. I like Katy Perry, you know? My wife listened to BTS all the time, and I listened to BTS the other day, and I was like, this sounds incredible. Of course, it was Serban who mixed it. He's, of course, the (laughs) biggest pop mixer ever but then you know there are other things that people love that i'm like i don't like it i don't want to hear it i don't think it sounds good you know but i i just think there's so many cool ways to make a cool or good mix that there's not a really great way to answer that question
0: (laughs) fair yeah i mean it does come down to the song and the combination of you know all of the right elements coming together, like the recording, the production, the the mixing, all of that stuff has to come together to create something really special.
1: Yeah, and I, I think half the time they don't know it's special, or you don't even know it's special. It's I true. Mean, 90% of the songs that I've done that have had so much success, we didn't know. We were just like, wow, good one. That was fun. <laughs> like, there's a song by this guy uh, called Old Sea Brigade. Um. He's done really well, but he and I recorded this song called "Love Brought Weight" like ten years ago, and it was just him and acoustic guitar, and we just did it all together. You know, the song has sixty million plays. Like it's, we had no clue. You know what I mean? We were just enjoying it, and it turned out to be this colossal song. We didn't know, you know what I mean? And so, I don't know. There's just a lot of like, like a lot of life and luck factors that come into. Making a song have success.
0: I don't know. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, totally, man. Totally. Well, uh, man, Jeremy, I, I, I think that that's a great spot to wrap up because I think we covered a lot of ground here. And, and yeah, it's just really interesting to hear your story and, and your approach to mixing. And having heard more from you, it makes a lot of your mixes make more sense to me, like just the way cool. you approach it in a very, very cool way. So, so thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate oh, thanks it. thanks for having me. This was really fun. No problem. If people want to learn more about you online or potentially even work with you, like what's the best way for them to do that?
1: I guess just write me an email. I quit social media because it's the devil. And I just couldn't be a part of it anymore. It was (laughs) driving me insane. So um, I have a contact section on my website. Uh, They can hit me up there. Um, That's kind of it. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, I'll have your links in the
0: show notes as well so people can access that as well.
1: Cool. Tell it, And anyone can hit me up anytime and ask me a question. I think it's really fun to talk about this stuff. We're all learning. We're never going to stop learning. Let's do it together.
0: Awesome. Well, dude, thanks again for taking the time to do this. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. So that was my interview with Jeremy Griffith, and that was awesome. I love the way he approaches his mixes, and he kind of starts fresh with every single mix, and it definitely makes sense. when, you, Like I said at the beginning of this episode, you know, every mix of his sounds completely different, and especially when it comes to the vocals, but after having talked with him here, it definitely clicked a little bit in terms of, you know, how he's able to get each song to sound different. He, he starts with his vocals and he shapes the sound just from there. And then that influences everything else that follows. So I just think it's a really refreshing approach. And I highly recommend that you check out his tracks because they sound awesome. So uh, Jeremy, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for taking the time to be on here. Awesome interview. And I hope to have you back on at another time. Now, for you, the listener, I hope that you really enjoy this. And if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Also, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com if you haven't done that already. And on the website, one resource that you're definitely going to want to check out is called The Mixing Mindset. This is a book that I put together that shows you all of the steps that go into creating pro mixes from your home studio. And inside, I'll walk you through all of the different tools, the different ways to approach listening to your tracks and knowing how to dial in settings that will make your song sound the absolute best they can. No using presets. Instead, this is all about customizing settings so that you get the absolute best sound so definitely check out the book it's called the mixing mindset and it's available at masteryourmix.com and that is it for this episode i hope you enjoyed it i can't wait to talk to you in the next one we'll talk soon take care thanks for listening to the master your mix podcast to have your questions answered submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com please go to itunes and subscribe and leave a review And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.